right, there's the setup. Joshua chapter 10. If you're not already there, pull out your handouts. Pull out your handouts, take a few notes, open your Bibles. Joshua 10 and 11 today. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thanks for the fact that you love us and you teach us. I thank you that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for my life. So Father, today we look at some great battles, the biggest battles of the book of Joshua. And I pray that you teach us about what your truth is and how to apply that to the battles in our life as we wage our own campaign for the life in Christ that you have provided by your grace. So teach us about life, even as you teach us from Joshua's battles. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Hey, Israel's campaign up till now would cause me to be real concerned if I had a good day yesterday. And here's why. So far we've seen a very clear cycle all through the book of Joshua. Joshua walks with God. Joshua obeys God. Jo- Joshua has a great day and a great victory. Woohoo! Okay? And then the very next time he turns around, the next battle falls on his face and gets his backside whipped. Joshua learns from his mistakes. He gets up. He goes again. Steps over here. Woohoo! Victory number two over Ai. Whips Jericho. Whips Ai. What happens next? He turns around, remembering this time, hey, this time I gotta stay strong in, in God. I gotta stay strong in Christ. What happens? He gets tricked and he gets fallen on his face again, this time through trickery. So what we've seen is this, good day, bad day, good day, bad day, good day, bad day. That's the book of Joshua so far. Therefore, if I've had a good day yesterday, I'm staying home today. I'm going to stay in bed, pull the covers up and wait it out till the next day. You know, because, you know, life just seems like this up and down experience. A great victory one day, I get my backside kicked the next day spiritually as I try to do the battles that I want to do with temptation and life and and everyday life. So today, though, we're going to see a radical shift in Joshua that I think is kind of cool. We're going to study not one but two chapters. Two chapters made up of three military campaigns in which Joshua gets on a roll. I call this message, Five Keys to a Winning Streak. It's tough in sports to be the hot team that goes on a winning streak and to keep it going. Because the longer you win, the more you open yourself up for defeat or to be tricked or or pride or all the different things that can bring you down. But today, we're going to actually study a passage in which there is no loss. There is no defeat. There, there's a string of victories. In fact, if you total them up, if I did the math right, I think there's 31 different kings that Joshua will defeat today and no losses. That's not a bad record, right? That's not a bad season. That is the Chargers next year. Amen? Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, that's it. You know, I believe that. Well, maybe not, but close to it. But the reality is if the Chargers are going to do that next year, they ought to listen to this sermon, okay? So God's going to teach us and anyone else some principles of life, especially that you can apply to your campaign for life in Christ as we learn from Joshua's three big military campaigns. And they're big ones. They are big ones. Let's go to Joshua first as he faces the biggest battles of this book. The biggest battles of the book. You'll see why in a minute. Pick it up in chapter 10, and we're going to kind of spend most of our time in the first campaign for for the central portion of Palestine. I'll show you in a minute his military strategy. But then we're going to spend a little less time on the southern campaign, northern campaign, because our objective of the morning is not just to learn about his warfare, but about how we apply this to our lives. And we're going to see five keys that I believe can help 
They're not going to help you never lose because the reality is until we go to heaven, at times we all lose. At times we all mess up. At times we all sin. But they should help you to even out those highs and lows in your spiritual life. So it's not like a great week this week and a, and a really crappy week next week. We're going to try to level those out and see how do you keep growing with Christ, more victories, less losses as you learn these lessons. Pick it up in chapter 10. Now it came about that when, that when Adazinic, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And then the inhabitants of Gibeon, this was last week's story, if you missed it, go online and listen. The inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within the land, that he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. So now he says, hey man, now Israel is one thing. Nobody's stopping them. Jericho couldn't stop them. Ai couldn't stop them. And now he learns they've had, they've had a, a, a treaty with the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites are stronger than the other cities. So he says, now we got double trouble with Israel. So he reacts. What's his reaction? His reaction is to build a stronger alliance than Israel has ever faced. Therefore, Adazenic, the king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoam. And by the way, we dedicated a bunch of girls today. If you have a guy in the womb, this is a great place to find creative names. Okay? Yeah. You know, try, try, try some of these. Okay. To Hoam, the king of Hebron. By the way, you know what my first name is? That's my first name. That's another strange story, but actually that's my first name. That's why I go by H. Dale Burke. <laughs> okay, I never liked that. But anyway, Hoam, the king of Hebron, uh, or Hebron as I say it, and Param, the king of Jarmuth. Jarmuth would be good. Uh, and Japhra, the king of Lachish, and Debir, the king of Eglon. Eglon would be a great name for a guy. Eglon. Uh, saying, come with me, come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. Okay, what an alliance. These five gathered together and went up and with all of their armies, they camped by Gibeon and fought against it. So Gibeon is now under attack. We know last week that Joshua had been tricked, not whipped, but tricked into a, a treaty with the Gibeonites. So here it comes down, verse 6. So the men of Gibeon send word to Joshua, who's camped back at his base camp of Gilgal. Remember that? He established Gilgal as his base of operations right after he crossed over the Jordan River. And what we see now is they cry out for help. Do not abandon your servants, verse 6. Come up and help us quickly. Save us. Help us for all the kings of the Amorites, these different city-states who live in the hill country, have assembled against us. So Joshua went up to Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, so he meets with God again, and the Lord says to, to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you so we see that god reminds joshua look don't fear them even though this is the biggest alliance you'll face so far there's a bigger one coming toward the end of the section 
but do not fear them because the bottom line is I am with you. And we see beginning in verse 9 how God provides this victory. This whole message breaks into three big stories. There's the central Palestine campaign to to wipe out their enemies in the in central Palestine. The strategy is very clear. In fact, we'll bring up the first map. I'll show you. That basically, this is an overview of the book of Joshua. Go back one slide. There we go. Go back one slide. Uh, there we go. This is an overview of the map of Joshua. You can see where they crossed the Jordan River. As they crossed from uh, east to west, they crossed the Jordan River. The first city was Jericho. I know you can't read that on the map, but the first city is Jericho. They take out Jericho. They go to Ai. They take out Ai. They head toward Gibeon, but then they're hoodwinked into a, a false treaty with the Gibeonites who were next. But then you've got all these other city-states. Uh, you've got all these other armies that are in the central part of their land that God has promised them. And his strategy is clear. He's going to penetrate the middle of the country. He's going to take out central Palestine, divide his uh, opposition into north and south, and then take them out one at a time. So we're going to see the central campaign, then we're going to go to the south, and then we're going to end up today in the north. So that's the big picture. Now focus in, zoom in uh, with our technology here. We'll zoom in on Google Maps. We will zoom in. There we go. I knew it. Thank you. Well, on central Palestine. Now, here is the battle as it begins to unfold. Uh, because what we're going to see is, and there's a beautiful balance in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, God says to Joshua, Joshua, look, man, do not fear. Uh, they're going to fall before you. I have given them into your hands. I will fight for you. Okay? Do not fear. The battle is mine. Now, you know, if Joshua hears that, what, what might he do? He might say, okay, so no need for me to rush. Why don't I get a good night's sleep? We'll go up tomorrow, and God's going to give us victory. But instead, you see kind of a balance. Joshua is totally dependent upon God, but then he strategizes. He strategizes like a great military commander should. And here's his strategy in verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. So he pulls one of these surprise attacks by doing a, a night march. And uh, again, this is before LED lights. Okay, they got no flashlights. But the reality is he does a night march to quickly move his army into place and engage the enemy. Now, look at the battle. I love this. Verses 10 to 15. I call it in your outline the triple miracle. Here it goes. See if you can pick them out. Three miracles in one story. And the Lord then confounded them before Israel. In other words, God causes confusion in their ranks. Notice this. Some miracles you can't see, but God is behind it. Anyway, a lot of what God does in and around your life is totally invisible to you. It would look like a very natural occurrence. There's nothing that would cause... You might think, wow, Joshua surprised them, and he got them rattled, and they stopped communicating, and it caused them to be in disarray. The reality is God miraculously confuses the other army, their enemy. He says that the Lord confounded them before Israel. And then he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. And he pursued them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makada. Now, what's going is he's got them on the run, right? So this five-army alliance is fleeing before him. They're getting slaughtered. 
But, but what, where are they headed? They're headed for their safe havens. They're headed for their fortified cities. They're headed for the hill country, you know. Let's, you know, so they're trying to get back to a safer environment. And, and, and Joshua sees that he's missing an opportunity to finish this battle off, to finish off his enemy in central Palestine. So as they fled before Israel, they're on the descent. Here's what happens. Secondly, it says that, that God uh, threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones, these huge hailstones that God begins to pelt them with, than those who died from the sons of Israel killed by the sword. So God has taken out more of them than Israel is with a hailstone uh, attack. And miracle number two. And then miracle number three, it gets better. Verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel and said in the sight of Israel, verse 12, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the book of Jashar would be a, a, a outside of the Bible historical record that back then must have spoken of this strange day in which the day gets prolonged. The sun, quote, stands still. The moon stays in place. The reality is what he's describing is to, in one way or another, what he's describing is a miracle where God prolongs the day, that the sun stays up. Instead of them getting cover of darkness where they could escape from Israel, God keeps the sun up. He slows it down in some way so that basically it says for about a day. And then verse 14 acknowledges the miraculous nature of it. He says the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like it before then or after it. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, the prayer of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now the next part of the story in verse 16 to 27 talks about these five kings and how those kings still, however, escape to a cave near Makata. They get in this cave and the five kings are hiding out in the cave. Israel finds them. Joshua has them wall them up in the, in the cave, keep them in the cave till he's ready for them. He goes there. He gets them out of the cave. He slays them himself, has them hung to show the people this is what happens when you oppose the God of Israel. And then he throws their bodies back in the cave and closes it up again. And then he says, while I'm here at Makata, verse 28, he takes out army number six. He says, now Joshua captured Makata on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makata, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Now let me remind you, we talked last week a little bit about the brutality of this book and why God is so in, uh, insistent that they wipe out these people. You know, as I mentioned to you last week, but I just want to remind you, Scripture itself, I was talking to one of our members this week and they reminded me that in the book of Leviticus, it actually reminds us that God said, the reason I'm going to do this, one, is to purify the land so that these false people who worship false gods will not uh, will not pollute your faith in me and lead you astray because 
I have a I have a eternal global purpose behind giving my people this land. So that is part of the reason. The other part of the reason mentioned in Leviticus is these were people that were being judged by God for their own wickedness. Uh, they practiced uh, human sacrifice, for example, as a part of their worship. They would sacrifice babies as a part of their worship of their false gods. They had all kinds of sexual perversion uh, as a part of their worship and their culture. I don't have time to go into it, but these, uh, these were some very, very vicious people, and God is casting judgment on them as he is also removing them from the land. More on that last week if you want to go back and listen to that. But this is just one more example of that. Now, let me pause for a minute because some of you are already wondering, you know, Dale, but this is impossible. I mean, how does this third aspect of this miraculous victory in central Palestine, how does this line up with science? There's been a lot written over the years of people speculating about which type of astrological event might cause the illusion of this or might cause this and this and that. You know, as I read that this week and looked at it, let me tell you the scientific reason behind that miracle with the sun. Okay, it's a fairly short reality. God. Make sure you write that down. Okay, it's the God theory. It's the God fact. In, in you know, the truth is it was God. You know, Scripture couldn't be clearer. Scripture acknowledges this is a miracle. Scripture acknowledges. You know, I, I, I see nothing in the text that would indicate. Sometimes God does miracles, by the way, by by rearranging the uh, the, the circumstances. Uh, you know, he, he can play with creation any way he wants to. Uh, the very definition of a miracle is is by is that it is a supernatural event. It is an event in which the regular laws of nature are set aside, and 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 are uh, there's an exception to them, you know. And the reality is, or the truth is, in this story, that it very clearly is calling this out as you know God did this, and it's never been done before, it's never been done since, but. The God of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, creator of all of the laws that govern heaven and earth, really doesn't even break a sweat if he wants to uh, temporarily set some of those laws aside in order to do his will. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus was a miracle. Raising someone from the dead is a miracle. Um, Giving someone new life when they're spiritually dead is a miracle. The reality is we have a miracle-working God. We'll come back to that later. But that's my favorite explanation. Okay, we move from there, and just to give you the summary, uh, he moves to now go back to our map to attack uh, from central Palestine. He moves further south, takes on the southern different cities. Uh, As he attacks, uh, the summary of the battle is contained in Chapter 10, verse 40, basically it names all of these cities and all of these kings. Uh, and, and, and the consistent theme is Joshua did just as the Lord had commanded him. Joshua did just as the Lord had commanded him. God fought for Israel and God fought for Israel. And by repetition, you see that. The conclusion is given in verse 40. Verse 40 says this, Joshua 10. Then Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev, 
uh, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, which is in the far south, even as far as Gaza, which is over toward the coast, and all of the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Gibeon is where he took off from. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time, that is in one big campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Underline that. Verse 43. So Joshua and all of Israel with him returned to camp at Gilgal. So they returned back up north to Gilgal. The northern campaign begins shortly after that, beginning in chapter 11, 1 to 22. And this time, the kings of the north gather, and they're even more intimidating. Uh, for example, pick it up with me in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11. Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, and he sent to Joab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shemron, and the king of, of Akshraf, and to the kings that were in the north and the hill country uh, of the Arabah. And was all the northernmost kings are being described, all the way up, verse 3, to the foot of Mount Hermon. And they came, verse 4, and all of their armies with them, as many as the sand, uh, uh, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with as, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to, to meet as allies against Israel, came and encamped together by the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now you got an even bigger alliance. Verse 6, see the pattern. In verse 6, God gives his reminder. The Lord said to Joshua. Joshua continues to meet with God, hear the voice of God, and God says this to him. Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. and You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly, by the waters of Miram and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them. Verse 12, Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings and he struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Just notice the repetition. Just as the Lord commanded. Just as the Lord commanded. You just see it popping over and over. Anytime you study the Bible and you're trying to figure out what's God trying to tell me, watch for repetition. He listens to God, does just as the Lord commands. We talked about that last week, how God through his word and through his people give wise counsel and wisdom in scripture to guide us. Another victory, big time. Finally, it concludes in chapter 11, Verse 23, jump to the end of the passage. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Now next week, we're going to study another battle. So why does he say in 11.23, thus the land had rest from war? What he's really saying, and you see it on this map, is he's now covered the entire country. The country is under his control. There are still pockets of resistance. 
because there are still some bad guys who have slipped off into the hill country here or into a fortified area here. And we're going to see next week how an 84-year-old guy is going to step up to take out the toughest pocket. Next week is my favorite sermon in the book of Joshua. So do not miss next week, all right? If you miss it, oh, you're going to really pay the price, okay? Yeah. It's a great message about the long haul in life. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun one as we study, um, study, study the, uh, the life of Caleb. The land had rest from war. There's still minor skirmishes to come, but it's under their control. So Joshua can now begin to give out different portions of the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. What do we learn from this? Why does God go to all the trouble to give us two chapters with all of these battles? I mean, he could have summarized this in one verse. He could have said, and Joshua finished them off in the central, south, and the north. Amen. You know, I mean, that would have been a lot easier for me to teach. What do you learn from it, though? Let me, let me just kind of pull out what I see the big ideas by repetition. Number one, when you face your challenges in life, As you try to walk with Christ, keep your focus on God, not your circumstances. Consistently, he comes up against armies that are more incredible than he's ever faced before. Okay, they go from big to bigger to best. And it doesn't matter what he comes up against. If he keeps his focus on the size of his God, not the size of his problems, then it eliminates fear. The other thing by repetition is this. You can underline the verses if you want. In 10.8, do not fear. In fact, I think I put the verses in your outline, didn't I? I give these to you? Yeah. 10.8, do not fear, for I have given you the land. 10.25, do not fear, for thus the Lord will do. 10.42, because the Lord will fight for Israel. 11.6, I've given you the references. Do not be afraid, for I will deliver them into your hands. See, the way I would summarize this first section is this. Dwelling on my problems breeds fear. But seeing God in the midst of my problems restores hope. I need to learn how to look at life with glasses that enable me to see the unseen. To see God as a part of my reality. The truth is, God is there. The truth is, Christ paid for your sin. He gave you life. He set you free. He gives you promises. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have abundantly every other day. Is that what it says in John 10.10? No, it doesn't say every other day. It doesn't say you have to have a great day one day, but I guarantee you, you're going to fall on your face the next day. You know, it's going to be victory, defeat, victory, defeat, victory, defeat. But when you start learning the lessons of life like Joshua did, you can go on a winning streak like Joshua did. I don't ever, I never want to give you the impression that the Christian life is without any failure. Okay, I fall, I fail, so do you. We all still sin. But I do believe that the more you grow in Christ, the more you learn the principles of this section especially, it can, it can take you from highs to lows and begin to to put you on more of those gentle ups and downs as you walk with God. That's the big lesson, I think, of this section. Now, some people would say, Dale, you're asking me to live, though, in a fantasy. And I've got very real problems I'm facing in my family, in my life, in my personal life as I struggle with addiction or, or challenges uh, in my job, you know, I, I got I got issues. I got things I'm dealing with. See, I'm not asking you to live in a 
fantasy world. I'm asking you to live in the real world. And here's why. God's presence is not fantasy, it's reality. See, when I look at the world, and you'll hear this sometimes, from, especially from, from the culture, you'll hear, well, yeah, but if I can't see it, taste it, touch it, or test it, okay? If I can't see it, taste it, touch it, or test it, then it doesn't exist. I'm not going to include that in my decision-making. So, you know, uh, but the truth is, there, are, there is an unseen dimension to life called God. And, and, and it's not that I turn my brain off to discover God. I turn my brain on and discover God. When I look at creation, I look at the complexity of creation, I look at the life that, the, 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 the world that we live in and the nature of life itself, when I look at all that, that creation tells me about the existence of God, when I look at, 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 at the way that mankind is created, when I look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when I look at the fulfilled prophecies of Scripture, there's all kinds of different evidence that causes me to realize the truth is there is a God. So when I try to approach problems in my life as if, you know, I've got to approach this, if I can't plug God into the formula because I can't see Him, then you are living life in a world of fantasy because that world doesn't exist. Fantasy is a world without God. Reality is to understand that there is an unseen God and He is a powerful God and He loves me and He took the initiative to come out of heaven to reach down to me and through Christ He revealed Himself to us and He is my God. So I want to tackle life processing what I'm up against with the reality that God is a part of it. When I keep my focus on God and not my circumstances and his reality, I fear less. Number two, I need to keep my faith in my God, not myself. It flows out of that, doesn't it? Because if the reality is that there is a God, if that's the truth, then uh, I'm a fool if I try to live life without him. God is not a crutch. God is part of the truth of how life is designed to be lived. Some people say Christians make up God so they can just lean on him like a crutch because they're not strong enough to live life without him. You know, that's like saying that a fish is a fool for wanting to stay in the water. You know what I mean? I mean, these fish, they're so weak. Why don't they get up and walk around the land? Though fish are smart enough to realize they're kind of made to live in an atmosphere of environment that is wet you know if it starts feeling too dry too long if they're smart they go back under right the reality is it's more like that that we we were created to live in a relationship with god and without god um, we don't have life we're created for life lived with him it's the nature of being made in the image of god so keep your faith in god not yourself we could apply this so, we could talk all day about uh, how this applies in our lives. But, you know, Jesus often said, look, abide in me, trust in me, draw your life from me. Don't try to tackle life on your own. Learn to live in daily dependence upon Christ, and he will help you. He will help you. Smart to keep my focus 
on the fact that God is there. It's good to keep my faith in Him and not myself. Number three, third one I would say is this. Learn to pray boldly. Pray with bold humility, asking for miracles, not just the mundane. I think Joshua models what we see elsewhere in Scripture. There are times in which God will answer prayer in a miraculous way. Scripture says that no time before or after, however, has anybody asked for this big of a miracle. That's that's the essence of what he says after he does the sun stand still in the sky deal. So therefore, yeah, it's probably not the norm, okay? But it does remind me we have a miracle-working God. And and if it's God's will, I can ask for anything. And if it's God's will, in God's bigger picture of what he's trying to get done in and around my life, he is a miracle-working God. When was the last time you asked God for a Class A miracle? Don't give up on those. Now, can I walk you to the other side of this truth? This passage also teaches me don't expect God to say yes to all of those. Because... Like he says, God never did this before or since, okay? So the truth is that we're learning is you need to pray. That's why I say pray with bold humility. Be bold enough to pray big. Be humble enough to trust God no matter what he answers. And both require faith. I think it requires a lot of faith to pray for a miracle. But tell you the truth, it is easier for me to have enough faith to pray for a miracle, because I think God is a miracle God. It's easier for me to do that than it is to have enough faith to say, but God, if you say no or you choose not to solve this problem, but let me live in the battle for a while, I will trust you with that also. I think it takes more faith to love God when he says no than it does to ask him to do the big deal. Both are nurturing a walk of faith. And that's the biggest theme, I think, flowing through Joshua. Number four. Therefore, learn to persevere with... I'll give you another phrase. I like to make up words. Sanctified stubbornness. Believing God over the long haul. I call this sanctified stubbornness of the soul. Developing a spiritual soul that is... By golly, I'm not going to give up on my God no matter what he does or doesn't do. If God tells me to wait, I have enough perseverance in my soul that I will keep trusting God. I will love him when his actions do not look loving. Because a lot of times God has a bigger picture in what he's trying to get done in my life and in the world than I could ever begin to understand. So I kind of like that sanctified stubbornness, okay? There's a sinful stubbornness that you don't want. But I'm talking about now a sanctified stubbornness of the soul that says, I will not quit on my God no matter what. Last but not least. And why do I say that? Because you you read Joshua and everyone wants to focus on the real quick miracles, okay? Jericho, march around, march around, march around, blow the horn, walls fall down, easy battle, okay? You know, you know, you see these, you know, he prays, you know, they're whipping the guys, sun stands still, so he finishes them off, throws some hailstones in to speed up the battle, okay? You know, that's cool. So one day, God will, God will answer your prayers one day with a quick solution. You want this problem solved? Boom, I'll knock it out. 
Other times, can I balance this out? Because this is your spiritual life. Other times you're going to pray about something and you're going to have a five to seven year period of warfare like Joshua did. Some of these battles, I'm sure Joshua was praying, hey God, hey, about another quickie. You know, let's do it. Let's knock out another one. Some hailstones would really help today. Doesn't happen. Instead, he wages war for years in some of these campaigns. It's probably estimated that this total campaign is about a five to seven year campaign. Okay, we don't have enough detail to give us exactly the, the time frame, but it's a five to seven year battle. So are you willing to wait five, seven, ten, twenty years for God to deliver? And the reality is in some of the Christian life, final point, is God will deliver on his promises. In other words, be encouraged, hang tough, rest is on the way. That's my fifth and final point. In verse 23, he gave them rest from warfare. A few more little battles coming, but the victory was theirs. The land was theirs. See, Christ has a life that he wants you to experience. But to some degree, your total rest in Christ is assured and guaranteed and purchased on the cross, but you're not going to experience it until Revelation chapters 21 and 22 where he says, I created a new heaven and a new earth, and I gave you eternal life, and you live with me forever and ever, and there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. You're going to have the good life forever. But sometimes that rest will be yours. For all of us, in reality, that rest will be ours um, after this world is recreated, and we're recreated into his image. So what do you learn? If you don't want your spiritual life to be up, down, up, down, good, bad, begin to level it out. Begin to get on more of a winning streak. Putting your focus on Christ, your faith in Him, His promises, His presence. Pray with boldness, but also with humility. Trust in God. And know that eventually God will deliver. He will. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for the lessons you teach us from these periods of uh, warfare and battle. Three campaigns in two chapters. 31 kings bite the dust at the hands of God and Joshua and his army. Father, let it be a reminder to us that whatever we face, you are up for it. You're up to the challenges, no matter how big or how small. And teach us the lessons of trust in you one day at a time. Thank you that in Christ we have all that we need. Even as we give now, Father, let it be another act of worship. Let it be another opportunity as we do weekly to say we love you, we trust you. And we give generously to move your kingdom forward. We worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.